This podcast is intended for UK and Ireland healthcare professionals only. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Series 3, Episode 2 of the ILD Academy Spotlight Podcasts, brought to you by Boehringer Ingelheim. Featuring prominent members of the UK and Ireland interstitial lung disease community, these podcasts hope to shine a spotlight on the great work being done around the country and break down some of the challenges facing us in delivering excellent care to our patients. My name is Dr Anne-Marie Russell, a clinical academic at the University of Exeter and Royal Devon University Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust, with a special interest in patient-reported measures and outcomes in interstitial lung diseases and patient-centred approaches. The title of this episode is Mental Health and Support Needed in Interstitial Lung Disease, The Carer's Perspective, an exceedingly important topic. And joining me on today's episode is Tony, who is married to Sue, and Sue is living with IPF, as is Tony in his role as carer and support, as well as husband. So welcome, Tony. Hi, I'm Marie. Thanks for inviting me. Um, Tony, I wonder if we could start um, with you telling us just a little bit about yourself as, as Tony the man outside your caring and supporting role to Sue. Hi, yeah, my, my name's Tony Briley. I was, um, I'm just coming up to, uh, to 59 years old next birthday. And I worked in uh, manufacturing and engineering originally as, a, as an engineer and for the last 30 years as a manager. Um, I'm married to Sue. Um, we've been married uh, for just slightly over 40 years. And we live in a bungalow in the northwest of England. Um, we're happily getting on with our careers. Um, my hobbies are I like to watch motorsport. We've got three grown-up children, two grandchildren, and a little girl on the way in May, uh, which will make three grandchildren. Um, I, I enjoy gardening, uh, DIY. I like working in wood, like watching my football team. Um, generally, pretty much a normal middle-aged man, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, maybe less of the middle-aged. <laughs> Age is a state of mind, I've decided. I think I mentioned before my interest in, in interstitial lung disease started in the northwest, so it's it's lovely to sort of reconnect with that with that region. Um it sounds like you're a really busy man, <laughs> all in all. And so I, I wonder in that context, um, Tony, and where you find yourself now, what is your daily routine like as a carer? I wonder if you could talk us through that a little bit, please. So yeah, I, I it's interesting when, when we get described as curvers, Amory. I, I try to view it two ways. Curving always have done. So I, I do the I do the the curing for Sue, and I, and I do the curing for our relationship. I, I I try to keep it separated that way. So Sue's condition varies, um, as you'll know. So she can have really bad days, and she can have extremely good days. And uh, the daily routine is that I get out of bed. Um, uh, a little before Sue. We always discuss what we're going to do that day, depending on how Sue is. So um, we always try to get out every day. Uh, it's important for Sue to uh, get exercise of some description. And she still mobilises quite well, but she uses oxygen, uh, both in the home and, as she, and, and mobile units, portable units. The things that Sue can't do, I try to do. The things she can do, I just try to help her do them. But generally speaking, keep the house tidy. In the summer, I'll do a bit of gardening in the morning. But pretty much for 11 o'clock, we usually wrapped up. Sue's ready. 
and we'll always go out. She does have a lot of medical appointments in recent months, and that takes up probably two mornings or afternoons a week. Generally, we go out two or three hours. We don't do a great deal of walking anymore because Sue's restricted to a few hundred metres now, but we go shopping. We're avid shoppers, always were, and we try to maintain that. And I try to always make sure that whatever it is that Sue wants to do and would normally have done either by herself independently or, or as a couple, we still try to do those. And I think the trick there is just to try and ascertain what we can do in a day and what we can't do in a day. And we don't always get that right. And trying to sort of second guess it or read the situation can be difficult. Um, but generally speaking, we try to lead as normal life as a married couple as we can do, given some of Sue's restrictions. And generally speaking, I just try to be Sue's hands and hands and arms and legs when she needs it. But generally, keep it as normal as we can do. Yeah, it sounds like she's very lucky to have you. I'm sure she'd probably be the first to say that. And I think that you're absolutely right, that label, um, you are Sue's husband, first and foremost, with a, a caring role, second to that, which of course, oh, absolutely. Is, I suspect, part of that relationship. But for you, I guess you enable Sue to do so much that preserves that feeling of normality. So I'm just thinking about yourself, Tony, and what support you get from the, from the NHS or through other networks uh, for yourself. It's a little difficult in post-COVID times, Anne-Marie, to describe that because when Sue was first diagnosed, which is seven years ago now, pulmonary fibrosis per se was not something that even doctors were talking about, certainly my experience of it. So we found the support ourselves. And even today, I, I read this morning before I, we, we started this podcast, I read the NHS Curers pages on the website. And, and some of it's not actually been updated for several years. So I still think that the first point of call with the NHS is really um, signposts to volunteers and charities. And that's where I found my particular support. Clearly, we have families and we're very lucky that our three children understand what, what Sue's been through. Sue had a particularly difficult start with the with the disease because she took um, a very rapid decline when she was first diagnosed and then plateaued. So the first year happened to be one of the worst of the seven years. But the support we've picked up through the NHS in recent times after COVID, funnily enough, has changed slightly because I think there's a, a bigger understanding of respiratory disease because of the pandemic. And certainly some of the NHS um, professionals talking about it to us more often and they do consider it when you go um, with either related or unrelated um, issues to hospital. So I feel that the support, the understanding is more widespread across the NHS now, but I think the actual support network still to a degree is very much on a volunteer basis, charity-based basis, uh, friends, family. Um, we've done all the normal stuff like curious assessments and that, but ultimately you're only finding out what you would find out if you if you was to press it yourself. And I think that for many uh, people who care for a loved one with a, a long-term condition or chronic illness, in theory, extra support is available in terms of, of health checks. I, I think you keep yourself pretty healthy and you're certainly keeping keeping busy. I'm just wondering, wondering if there's anything that would make your life better 
or for other people out there who perhaps don't have the same family network as you have, is there anything that healthcare professionals um, or the NHS as an organisation could be doing better to support people who are living with interstitial lung diseases in their family? Well, I think we've, we've, we've begun to see that, actually, because I think what's happened, again, post-COVID, is that when you go into an hospital, a clinic, a GP surgery, you're getting signposted to the support networks now. And I don't think many of them are actually NHS-based, but there are a lot of organisations out there, um, particularly the bigger Curious charities like Curious UK, um, they're present online. People have got more familiar with um, looking at it on a Zoom meeting, seeing the internet, mobile apps. The NHS seems to have grasped that now because they've not had a great deal of choice other than to be an online presence. So, But the pointers are there. And I, I think that people who are curers, if they actually take the time to read or they're in a position to get a family member to help them find it, the, there are lots of support networks out there. It's just a case of finding them. And I think slowly but surely I've seen in the last 18 months, I've seen that presence when I walk into hospital, that they're at, please contact these people, please. Have. And we, we, as, as, as my work with APF, we've seen that even today that we've had more people come along to us, to our own particular support group because they picked up the information at the clinics in the hospitals. And that wasn't the case 18 months ago. Yeah, no, that's great. And do you think those support groups are aimed both at the person with the condition as much as the the family members as well? Well, again, given my relationships with charities and with our own support group, I see that there's far more emphasis with the curer now than there was when I first became a curer. And um, certainly the support groups that me and Sue access um, we've had the conversation. Uh, we've literally just got in from the Curious Sport Group that we that um, I now administrate, and um, the conversation today was about Curious, and um, which is not because we was doing this this evening, but um, we saw today. I think for the first time, every single patient who attended bar two had with them um, their unpaid carer. Yes, fantastic. And that support and shared experience is vital, isn't it, for all of us at different stages of of life. I'm wondering, Tony, from your introduction, (laughs) it sounds like you've got a lot going on in life, but do you think there's been a a change in your quality of life? Um, That could be for better, for worse, or it could be the same um, compared to how life was before Sue's diagnosis and, and where you're at now? There's only one way. It's devastating. It would be remiss to to not describe it any other way. Well, our life was, and we'll talk just about curers. I mean, we would have a different conversation with Sue, but um, our life as a couple and mine as a, as a husband have been devastated by the disease. And I always try to say that, you know, we're upset and frustrated at the disease, not each other. Um, but life has completely changed. We had, you know, we had careers, we had hobbies, um, we socialised, um, and we don't do any of those the way that we used to do it. And some of those things we don't do at all because we both don't work anymore. We've lost touch with my particular role. Was um, I was a manager in industry. So um, I literally know hundreds and hundreds of people, colleagues, acquaintances, contractors. Um, so that's gone out of my life completely. And I think anybody who's a curer 
of somebody with a serious chronic illness will be, I'll probably agree that um, as you go through these these days, these weeks and months, you lose contact with friends and some family members. You try to maintain them, but being a carer for somebody who's ill is, you know, is um, quite an invisible thing at times. And do you think that that's been exacerbated by the pandemic conditions over the last couple oh, of years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Sue got diagnosed in 2015. And like I explained, she took quite a rapid decline initially. We'd um, been planning all the normal life things that you would do and tried to find a way to do them with this illness, um, preventing some of some of the things we would do. But we had generally a plan. Um, for what we would do in the last two or three years. Uh, as she got a little bit of stability with the fitness, we decided to start taking some holidays. We was planning our daughter's wedding, which is a really good example, I suppose, as well. And then um, we went from that to being locked down. Uh, we're busy trying to protect ourselves from this horrible pandemic with a, um, you know, with the, with a lady with a respiratory illness and lung disease. So we literally couldn't go out of the house for a long time. And we had to take it really serious. And yeah, and of course it affects your mental health. We've managed it quite well, I think. But um, it was devastating to be locked away when we just about got to a point where we thought we could start being a little bit more independent again. Yes, yeah. Uh, but thankfully, um, you said that you try to get out for a meal occasionally, perhaps not as much as you would have done before, but but life is maybe normalising is not the right thing to say, but a little bit more normal than it has been. Yeah, well, well we have our normal and we say it, you know, we, we try to explain to people, yeah, we'll come out, we'll do this and we'll do that, but, you know, we'll do it our normal. So if you want to walk with us, you've got to walk yes. at our pace. And um, we don't stop out maybe as long as we didn't. But we're absolutely, as a couple, determined to maintain some semblance of normality. Um, but it's incredibly difficult because um, Sue's physical restrictions now um, are, are worse than they were originally. And um, psychologically, we're extremely cautious where we go and what we do. And as a carer, I mean, I'm constantly, you know, probably overthinking what precautions I should take and what I should plan. And I think really the inability to be spontaneous now, because we used to be quite spontaneous people, uh, we can't be spontaneous anymore. Sue hates to plan still, and, I, and I'm and i a planner. But um, in our social life, we used to just do what everybody else does, which is um, just go out and enjoy ourselves. Now you've got to decide, can you park? And I'm, I'm terrible for it, I have to admit. Can we park? Um can we get access into a place? Is what some people describe as disabled facilities really disabled facilities, which is uh, pretty much a bugbear of mine. I quite often see a thing that is meant to make a disabled life person, uh, the disabled person's life better, and I see that it's not. And it doesn't help probably because as a facilities manager, which is what I was, um, I used to put in disabled facilities for people in industrial facilities. And I've um, curiously developed a, an ism. I have uh, arrival anxiety now, uh, which I think I'll patent the term. And it's basically is um, being a little bit anxious about when you get to a place for something nice, like going to the theatre or something. Uh, can you get in? Can you park? Is it easy to get to? Is it close to the doors? Um, and the main bugbear is not being able to park. 
I think that's a really important point, Tony. And I think there are probably Mm. others who share that too. And and maybe that's something that we need to start talking about a lot more in in the community. And I I guess that leads me on quite nicely to to ask specifically about mental health and well-being. I think it's something that we uh, talk about a lot more now compared to perhaps a decade ago. But with that kind of sense of responsibility and uh, a different approach to life, how do you feel impacted in, in your mental health and well-being by adjusting to Sue's IPF? I always used to say I'd make a K-Cura and I would be a terrible patient, and I still believe that. And I was fine for the first few years, but COVID took its toll. I think it took its toll on everybody a certain way. And I know that we're resilient uh, as a couple, we're resilient as individuals, Coming out of COVID, oddly enough, though, I've felt the pace the last 12 months. And I've had to, I generally, I've changed the way that I view mental health over the last 10 years, like everybody else. But the last year, I hand on out for the first time, I would say that my mental health has suffered and I feel it. I feel anxiety, not quite understanding when it's going to occur, but knowing where it's coming from. I worry for the future a little bit more than I used to do. And it's tangible. I feel it every day. Um, and because I talk about it to others and, and certainly doing this today, I mean, I see this as therapy again. It's my way of coping. I understand now, really, how people can run into serious mental health issues. I don't think that's going to happen. I think I'm on top of it. Um, but I'm certainly more wary of it and I understand it now. And, and whether that's to do with COVID or whether it's because, you know, Sue's now, um, you know, we're, we're heading towards year eight since she was diagnosed. And so she's well past what was used to be regarded as the average life expectancy. And maybe it's other things as well, you know, um, we're also caring for a dad at the moment. So that's obviously at the moment a bit of a live issue. But generally, yeah, I'll be the first to admit that it does take its toll. I'm, I'm on top of it I'm, and I'm monitoring myself. And I think there's one or two probably covertly monitoring me. Yes. Yeah. Probably family members <laughs> among that list. Yeah. And just thinking about, I guess, again, reflecting on how the NHS is structured and psychological support is, we know, is something that we don't always do terribly well. And we don't have very many specialist psychologists working in teams that really understand the nuances of interstitial lung disease. But um, I don't know if either yourself or Sue or jointly have been offered any targeted psychological support at, at any stage in, in this journey over the last eight years. It depends how you refer to targeted. We're, we've been very fortunate to deal with the palliative care team. And I have to say, I mean, it's been a, an eye-opener just how helpful they've been. But even now, I think that, you know, I, I read a lot. And I probably read too much sometimes, but I know the difficulties that people are having accessing um, mental health care out in the real world there every day. And I know that people literally end up in hospital because they've not been able to access care. And I think it's generally, you know, the pressures that the NHS are under. But my experience of people helping us psychologically really lays with the palliative care team at the cancer centre that we use. Um, I don't know if it's 
unusual for this particular um, healthcare trust that we, that we access. But it is great. I mean, they're that good that they've even come to the support group today and trying to get people to understand, as, as we are, that, you know, you're not alone, um, that you can get help, and maybe the carers <laughs> need some support as well. And it's an ongoing job, work in progress, I think. Yes. And, and um, I mean, thank you for raising the important, so important area of palliative care and the fact that that's not just physical uh, and that it's not just about Sue, but it is about you too. I'm just thinking, I know the support groups have uh, been a, a big part of your life and you, you do an awful lot <laughs> for the IPF community. Um, and I, I, some people listening to this who know you will be aware of some of those activities, but I, I just wondered if you could uh, tell the listeners a, about the various uh, areas of work you've been involved in to make life better for people living with pulmonary fibrosis? Well, I certainly don't think I've done as much as you, as you say I've done. However, my youngest daughter did explain um, when I was on television last that it's a lot over the years, but um, for the listeners, yeah. I did, um, I'm very keen to support and drive the awareness of pulmonary fibrosis. And, and but that's led elsewhere because I'm also a critic of the way that carers are supported financially, and in particular, people like myself who and Sue who've worked, you know, had good careers, give them up because of ill health and to become a carer. If you look at us both, and we get very little support, we don't get the support that people would expect. Uh, so I've decided that jointly that's the goal. So I've chased down on a television debate the prospective Prime Minister at the time, Liz Truss. I've appeared on the BBC advocating for carers with uh, Nina Warhurst. I'm doing this podcast and we've we've done lots and lots of fundraising and awareness raising uh, with APF. And and generally, I've sort of bet myself and some others that I'll get me, me face and my voice on TV as often as I can. And I do view it, Anne-Marie, as my own therapy. Uh, It's what motivates me. So, Tony, you've spoken a lot about the value of support groups, and uh, of course, I'm in absolute agreement. Um, I just wondered whether you think there's an optimal time and how we get information out to patients and their family members uh, about what's available through the support groups. Oh, yeah, Anne-Marie, there really is. particularly with pulmonary fibrosis, but any ILD, you go into a, a meeting with a GP or a consultant and they did deliver ever so politely and empathetically terrible news, in, in, including devastating news, because some of these illnesses are worse. You know, they, they don't have the, the the hope that maybe a cancer sufferer might have. We know that this particular disease is fatal. So at diagnosis, that is the time to point people at the support groups. The day that they walk out with this terrible news and maybe a load of appointments that are going to come, a leaflet, a link, an app, anything at all. We've certainly done that in our local healthcare trust. Um, the ILD team and the palliative care team have helped me post the leaflets, help write the leaflets. The patient, the carer, the loved one, whoever presents, walks away knowing that there's somebody to talk to. And, you know, we, we've just finished the support group today and my wife has just spent, you know, 30 minutes talking to a lady who's come for the first time to the support group and the words are always the same. I thought I was the only one feeling like this. I thought I was the only one hearing this. And Sue said, you'll hear it a lot. 
but you're not alone. So yeah, the support group, you know, um, I think it's as important as, um, you know, the next appointment for a scam, you know, get, get it out there straight away. There are people out there prepared to um, invite you to come along and have a chat. Yeah, no, thank you, Tony. I know at our regional clinic, we give out um, all the URLs and contact information for local and national and some of the international support groups as well. So let's hope that's becoming standard practice now. Well, we see it. We do see it. It, it is happening. Uh, and I, I can't speak for other areas, but um, I have seen that change. And, and I would like to think that across the country, certainly... Um, you know, APF, the charity, they, they've advocated for that and I'm sure it's 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 beginning to happen. Lovely. Thank you, Tony. Uh, thank you so much. It's been a really interesting conversation and um, to the listeners, thank you very much for uh, joining us on this week's episode and I'd like to ask you to come back and join us next week for episode three in this five-part series when uh, we will be discussing the importance of nutrition. Thank you. <laughs>